Good morning. Uh, please join me in the reading of God's word. Um, Exodus 2, 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as a wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could no longer hide him, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. When her young women walked beside the river, she saw that the basket among the reeds and sent the servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse for, for the Hebrew women to nurse the child? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take the child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him, named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Have your Bible open to Exodus chapter 2. We're continuing our time in the book of Exodus, which we'll be doing for uh, a while, and we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 2. You go to the doctor, and you are found to have some kind of, I don't know, something wrong with you. You would sort of anticipate that the treatment the doctor gives you would correspond in some way with the ailment you have. For example, if you have a laceration, which is a fancy word for a cut, you would expect the doctor to maybe stitch the wound or put a bandage on it. You wouldn't expect him to, um, I don't know, give you an aspirin. I mean, he might give you an aspirin, but that's not going to stop the bleeding. Uh, if you go in, you have an infection, you would expect the doctor maybe to prescribe an antibiotic. If you have a growth, you might have to expect the doctor to prescribe surgery. You would anticipate. I mean, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? If you go to the doctor, you have something wrong, what are you going to do uh, to fix this? What's, what's the prescription? Uh, another way of saying this is the kind of help you receive is determined by what the need is. The kind of help that is put forward is determined by what the, what's at risk. If you have a laceration, you run the risk of bleeding, and so what you ought to do is Stop the bleeding. And so what we discover in Exodus chapter 2 is something, not merely the birth of Moses, although it is that. It is something in the Bible where God is telling us the kind of help he is providing because the help he is providing to us is connected intimately with the kind of need that we have. The kind of need that we have uh, is what determines the kind of help uh, he is going to provide. Uh, let me start by going over to Galatians uh, chapter 3. Let me explain this. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, the Apostle Paul says this. Now, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Who are the sons of Abraham? Anyone who believes. Paul is making the argument in Galatians anyway, that if you want to be a son of Abraham, all of Abraham's children are those who believe specifically in the claims of Christ that he came to save sinners and he died and he rose again. Scripture, this is 
Galatians 3.8, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. The Apostle Paul is making the argument in Galatians chapter 3, the gospel was proclaimed in Genesis chapter 12, when God promised Abraham, through you all of the nations will be blessed. Paul is arguing that blessing is the good news that Jesus saves sinners. All who would come to God through Christ by faith are now children of Abraham. So by faith, we become God's children, in a sense, children of Abraham by believing. So those who, this is verse 9 of Galatians 3, then, so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So we look at the people of Israel. They find themselves in Egypt. They have been living in Egypt for 425 years, and they have gone from living in luxury and having all of their needs met to now living in a time of suffering and opposition and oppression. They have been turned into slaves, and the reason that the Egyptian king has turned them into slaves is he wants to limit their population. They're getting too numerous. And so now the children of Israel are living as slaves, and the king of Egypt is seeking to destroy them or limit their population by slavery, uh, limit their population by killing the young boys as they're born, which doesn't work, and now, finally, by killing the young boys after they're born by having them thrown into the Nile. These are pretty despicable kinds of things. This is uh, really serious oppression. So we would ask ourselves, what is at risk for the people of Israel? What is the, the thing that needs to be addressed? Because remember our silly illustration about the doctor. Your treatment is going to be connected with what's at risk. If you're bleeding, stop the bleeding. If you have infection, treat the infection. What's at risk for the people of Israel? Is it that they might be wiped out? Is it that suffering might continue? Is it that parents might lose children? Is it that people might die unjustly and unfairly on construction sites throughout Egypt? All of those are bad things. But none of those is the problem. What's the problem? God has made a promise that he will bless the whole world through Abraham's children, the people of Israel, by bringing a redeemer through Israel. What happens if Pharaoh is successful in wiping out Israel? No Messiah. They are the people of covenant. So what we have to understand is God is going to provide help for his people, but not primarily because they're having a bad go of it. He is going to provide help for his people because his people are the means by which he is going to provide redemption. He is going to provide help for his people because his promises must be fulfilled. So what we're going to look at today, just two ideas from this historical account in Exodus chapter 2, is the kind of help God provides. So here's the title of the message if you like titles. Uh, if you don't like titles, uh, I guess plug your ears for a minute. Ordinary help for ordinary people. Ordinary help for ordinary people. First thing, he's going to provide help to his people. He's going to provide help for them, for the oppressed, from the oppressed. So God is going to provide help for the oppressed people of Israel from within the oppressed people of Israel. Jeff read it for us, but just review very quickly. A man of the house of Levi, 
Levi is one of the tribes of Israel. There are 12 tribes of Israel. Levi is one of them. And it says, a man from the tribe of Levi took another Levite, a woman, as his spouse. They're nameless here. Later on, we're going to discover that Moses' parents' name are Amram, that's his dad, Jochebed, that's his mom, and they're Levites, not a Levite and a Judite or a Levite and Issacharite. It's two Levites, and this is really important because we're going to discover later in the book of Exodus that through the law from God, he is going to establish the priesthood through the tribe of Levi. And it's important here for Moses, because he's writing the book of Exodus, to establish he is a Levite of Levites. Both his parents are from the tribe of Levi, and so he is a full-on Levite who is going to establish the priesthood through his brother Aaron, also a Levite. So these two folks come together, they have a child, and they, he is born, and the Bible says here that when he was born, she saw that he was a fine child, which I don't know what that means because that's what every mom thinks. <laughs> it's a fine child. I mean, what mom is born? Well, he looks all right. I mean, I guess I'll keep him. It's a tax deduction. What it is saying here, and we know this from looking over at Hebrews, which we will do in a minute, what it is saying is somehow God had made clear to Moses' parents upon seeing him that he was selected by God for his purposes. It does not mean that Moses had some sort of glorious appearance, a halo, or he was sinless, or any of these sorts of things. All it is saying is somehow God had made it known to Moses' parents that God had appointed this baby for something. Something in particular. Now, certainly these parents, like every other Hebrew family, hid their baby. To think that none of the other mothers and fathers in Egypt were hiding their babies would be silly. All of them were hiding their babies. We know this is true. How do we know this is true? Because when the Exodus finally occurs, some 40 or so years later, there's boys there. It wasn't all women leaving Egypt. So obviously the boys were getting past the edict, edict of Pharaoh somehow. They hid the baby for three months or so until finally they had trouble keeping the baby a secret. And so finally she devises this idea of putting together a basket that's waterproof and hiding it among the many reeds that would be flowing in the Nile River. And of course, as you know the story, the, uh, the Pharaoh's daughter goes down to bathe, which was normal. There was a lot of superstition around the Nile, and it was normal for uh, the very high and the very low to bathe in the Nile River to get some of its life force, because the Egyptians believed life came from the Nile River. And she found the baby and uh, took pity on him and took, her ho took him home as uh, was his. So let's think about this just for a minute. Every baby boy that is born in Egypt to a Hebrew is under a curse of death. Every baby boy that is born a Hebrew is under a curse of death from Pharaoh. Pharaoh has said every boy two years and younger needs to be thrown into the Nile. To be a baby born as a Hebrew baby boy is to be born in extraordinarily dangerous circumstances, and Moses was not born to some family who might be able to escape these circumstances. Whenever there's oppression of any kind, of any kind of people group, there are certain people who have the, the money or the influence to sort of escape some of the worst parts of that. 
uh, Hebrews, there certainly was Hebrews during that time that might have had good favor with the Egyptians or did business with high-related Egyptians officials, and they could sort of get a, a hall pass on killing their baby boys. But Moses was not born to any of those families. Moses' father was a slave, and his mother was a slave, and Moses was born under extremely dangerous circumstances, a boy born under a curse and put into a basket in the water. And this is where we have to make a very, very important distinction. Moses wrote five books of the Bible. Do you know what they are? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We call it the Pentateuch. Moses wrote Genesis. What historical account do we find in Genesis chapter 6? Noah and the basket. Noah made a gigantic basket, coated it with bitumen and pitch. Why do I say that? I'm being silly because it looks like some of you are falling asleep, so I have to make a joke. Because Moses wrote Genesis and Moses wrote Exodus, and he used the word ark in only two places. Genesis to describe what Moses built and Exodus to describe what his mom built. I have no idea why they decided to call it basket when there's a perfectly good word for basket. Moses was delivered from death from the water through an ark. Do you think Moses wrote those two things on accident? Because he's trying to establish for us a theme of something that God is up to. He's trying to establish for us that the curse of death is on those who are under the curse of sin, and those can be delivered by a means of God alone, Noah was delivered by an ark that God told him to make. Moses was delivered by an ark that his mother made. Look with me over at 1 Peter 3.20, or listen to me as I summarize it here. In the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, there was much doubt, of course. Only eight persons were brought safely through the water. Who were the eight people? Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives... So in the days of Noah, the basket was being prepared. You're going to do that for the rest of your life now, Noah and the basket. You have this picture now of a gigantic picnic basket full of animals. Eight persons were brought, here's the key phrase, safely through the water. The waters were a curse of God upon sinners, and he redeemed Noah from that curse through the ark. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 21. Baptism corresponds with this. It saves you not by removing dirt from the body, but actually as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers being subjected to him. So what he's saying, baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is a means by which we communicate Jesus is raised which saves me. So I can pass safely through the waters of baptism. Why? If Jesus isn't saved, baptism is half as long as it normally is. You go under and you stay there. That's a dangerous form of baptism. But if Christ is raised, baptism goes a little different. What do you do? You go under participating in the death of Christ and you you come out. Passing safely through the water is a testimony that Christ is risen from the, from the dead. 
Baptism as a ritual is not saving us. Baptism as a symbol, as a testimony, reflects that Christ's resurrection saves us as we trust in him. So God delivered Noah by the ark, and he passed safely through the waters of baptism, and he chose for his purpose, Noah, to do that. And God has now purposed for Moses to pass safely through the water to escape the curse of death to deliver his people. God chose Moses, not the people of Israel. We should be thankful the people of Israel did not choose their deliverer. We're going to discover later on in the book of 1 Kings, they are not good at choosing their leaders. They have determined they would have a king. And they find a king who's perfectly qualified. What is that king's perfect qualifications? Tall, dark, handsome. Let's make him king. He'll be able to lead us well. Tall, dark, and handsome is all that it requires. God does not appoint people that way. So Israel did not choose their deliverer. Instead, God took a baby who was cursed and selected one among the slaves who was cursed by the curse of sin, Pharaoh's sin's sinful death edict, not from the elite or the powerful or the influential. He provides his help for the ordinary, for the oppressed, from the oppressed. And so Moses is brought safely through the water to deliver his people. And in a very real way, we are brought safely through the water by our deliverer, who is Christ. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about Moses' parents. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, testifies to their faith. By faith, this is verse 23 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Again, this word is very hard to translate. What he's saying is they could tell God had selected him for his purpose, and so therefore they feared the purpose of God more than the Pharaoh's edict that all babies should be disposed of. And so Moses' parents, trusting God, preserved his life that God might have his way in the life of Moses, Moses to bring redemption. What we have to understand from the story of Moses' birth, this historical account, is we must believe, as they did, that God was establishing a pattern that he is bringing salvation, he is bringing deliverance, not from a hero way out there, but he is bringing redemption from right within his people, right within the people who are already accursed. God is establishing his pattern of redemption, salvation from amongst those who need salvation. I think some of you probably don't believe me, or maybe you are believing me, you just don't want to think about it. But let's read a couple more places. I really want you to understand what's happening here, because otherwise, this Exodus account is just a strange story of a guy being born in the Nile. Isaiah 53, a passage you're very, very familiar with, and quoted in the Gospel of John, and so we know from there that this ultimately is talking about Jesus. I'm going to read Isaiah 53, 1 through 5. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he, 
had no form or majesty that we would look at him. Excuse me, and no beauty that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And on the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his all. So the people of Israel are anticipating a Savior who is glorious and mighty and majestic. Majestic? Majestic, swooping down with a golden sash, maybe a big S on his middle of his chest. Jesus came, as Isaiah predicted, although the people of Israel at the time didn't want that kind of Savior. They wanted a deliverer from their oppression, and instead came this disrespected, almost embarrassing figure, unattractive to look at. You see pictures of Jesus often. He appears that he just walked off the catwalk of the New York fashion show. And he's like this supermodel and amazing. And, and that's not how the Bible describes him. If you saw him in passing, you would either completely miss him or you'd go, oh man, we should get that looked at. Matthew chapter 3. Listen, this is important. John the Baptist is baptizing. And in Jerusalem, this is Matthew chapter 3, verse 5, Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to John the Baptist, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sin. In fact, this is how John describes his baptism. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What kind of baptism was John's baptism? A baptism of repentance. What kind of people got baptized by John? People who needed to repent. We call those people sinners. You go out to John to get baptized, and after you get baptized, you get a t-shirt. And it says, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. That's what that baptism meant. John's baptism was a dunking under the water to identify the fact, I'm a repenter. I've got things to repent of. And he says, Jesus' baptism will be a different kind of baptism. So Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by who? John. Wait, what kind of baptism is Jesus going to get baptized with? Maybe John has two kinds of baptisms. He says, listen, John, I know you've got the re repentance special. Uh, what I want to do is pay a little extra and get the Messiah baptism. You have any of those t-shirts? Well, John's only got one kind. He has repenter's baptism, sinner's baptism. So, in, in fact, John understood the theological implications of this. So, Jesus came down. He said, hey, guess what? I need to be baptized by you, cousin. And uh, what do you think? And John says, um, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus answered, you're right, 
I agree with you, sinner. Uh, but for now, let's do it this way because this is what God wants. I'm paraphrasing. So John consented. Good idea when God's telling you what to do. Just tips for living. Um, Jesus was baptized as a what? Repenter. He got up out of the water. If there were t-shirts, he would have put on a t-shirt, and what would it have said? You think there's a different t-shirt, don't you? Dirty, rotten sinner. I can tell it's bothering you. There's a verse, is it? verse for it. What is it? You who knew no sin, what? Became just the G-rated sins, but not the bad ones. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might have the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus is baptized with the repenter's baptism, comes out, and God the Father opens heaven and says, this is my son. He knows what's up. The deliverer for the oppressed must come from the oppressed. The deliverer for the sinners must come from the sinners. The pattern was set by Moses' birth and is being completed in its full way by Christ's ministry. There's a difference with Jesus, though. Noah passed through the water safely by the ark, and Moses passed through the water safely by his ark. Jesus did not pass through the water safely. We'll get to that more at the end of the message. Something you must square with your own heart as it comes to your relationship with God, everyone wants a king. Everyone wants a hero. Everyone wants a knight in shining armor, a hero bigger than life, someone to show up and fix everything. And Moses in Exodus 2 is not that. He is a cursed baby saved by the will of God only to be a cursed one to deliver those who are accursed. And Jesus is not the hero, the knight in shining armor. He has come to be sin for us that we might receive his redemption. And the people of Israel were terribly frustrated with that. How frustrated were they with that? They killed him for it. You're not the hero we want, so we'll fix you to a cross. We didn't need a hero. We didn't need a knight in shining armor. We needed a sinner to die. That's what we needed. What we needed was a sinner to die, and so in fact, one of us died, and that was him. Ordinary help for ordinary people. Help for the oppressed from the oppressed. Now, we might say this. We might admit, okay, fine, I don't need a hero. I don't need a knight in shining armor. I don't need a king. But you know what? I do need. I need my stuff fixed. Life stinks sometimes. And fine, I don't need a hero. I don't need a king. I don't need any of that. But I need this stuff worked out. I need this stuff handled. Anybody ever prayed that prayer? God, I love it. You're great. But guess what? Show up, homie. Come on. There is some really ugly stuff going on, and I don't know what you're up to. So what if our trouble isn't our biggest problem? So this is the second thing we want to look at. Ordinary help for ordinary people. Help for the troubled in their trouble. Go back to Exodus chapter 2. Moses is in his ark, and Pharaoh's daughter sees him and tells one of her servant girls to go and retrieve it. She opens it, and the baby's crying. And surprisingly, she doesn't fix that crying problem by throwing him into the river. 
thankfully. She took pity on him, said, you know, he's probably hungry. Then Moses' sister, unnamed here, probably Miriam, says, you know, I just happen to know a Hebrew who's currently nursing. And Pharaoh's daughter said, why don't you go get her? So Moses' mother nurses Moses, probably, and in, in, we think in those times, uh, nursing lasted three to four years, and she got paid to do it. So she got paid to nurse her own son, which is a pretty good deal. And then at the end of that time, he was taken to Pharaoh's household and was adopted and was given an Egyptian name, which means to draw out of uh, the water. Help for troubled in their troubled. I don't know if you know this, when firefighters come up on a crash scene, most of their time, most of the time, a car crash anyway, their primary concern is not to get the people out of the car. So you can imagine if you wreck your car and you've rolled it and you're stuck in there, maybe injured, and the firefighters show up, what is your first priority for those firefighters? Get me out of here. But as it turns out, for, mo- for firefighters, it's not their first priority is to get you out of the car. Their first priority on arriving at, a, at the scene is to stabilize the vehicle. What they don't want to do is have the car continue to roll over on you as they're taking you out. They don't want the car to slide down the hill as they're taking you out. So what they'll often do is take lots of time when they arrive on the scene to make sure the car is perfectly stable before they take you out of the car. And that whole time as you're in there saying, hurry it up, fellas. So the trouble in that moment is not primarily your injury or your need to get out of the car. The trouble is you want to make sure you have a safe way to get out of the car. And what we need to understand from Exodus 2 here is most many times the main problem is not necessarily the main problem. Some of you might have seen these YouTube videos about movies. These videos are called How It Should Have Ended. Who's seen these videos? Good. Good. 12 people under 35. <laughs> how It Should Have Ended. So they're YouTube videos and they're made about movies and saying how it should have ended. So there's one about The Lord of the Rings, right? How It Should Have Ended. The Eagles should have flown Frodo and, and um, Samwise in uh, to drop the ring into uh, Mount Vesuvius or whatever it's called. And of course, if you've read the books, you know why that doesn't work. But in the movies, well, what should have happened here is the Eagles should have flown them in and they could have dropped the ring off and the movie would have been about five minutes long. And so when we read Exodus chapter 2, we can say, well, how should this have ended? Pharaoh's daughter should have found this baby and taken pity on him and immediately gone to her father and said, you know what, maybe this policy of killing babies is a bad idea. And she could have used her influence with her father to end the infanticide policy and maybe even to go to her dad and say, you know what, I've been spending some time with the Hebrews. And I don't think they're a danger to Egypt. I think maybe our entire policy of oppressing the Israelites might be a a bad policy. So what should have happened is Pharaoh's daughter should have ended this whole thing, and the book of Exodus would have ended in chapter 2. But that's not what happened, because the main problem for the people of Israel was not that they were being oppressed as slaves. The main problem for the people of Israel is that God wanted to establish his redemptive covenant with his people and for all who would believe through his people. And he must fulfill his covenant. If you remember last week, what can stop God's covenant from being fulfilled? 
nothing. We described it as a glacier. They can't be stopped, even though they may not go as fast as we would hope. God's unstoppable covenant is going to be accomplished, and the main concern God has is fulfilling that covenant through his people, which are the people of his covenant. His main concern is not primarily alleviating their suffering. In fact, God is establishing a pattern here that his primary goal throughout all of human history is to complete his covenant promise of blessing mankind through a savior. Over in the book of Mark, we see this, Mark 1, 28. Mark 1, 28. Jesus is healing people. It says this, Jesus left the synagogue and he went to the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a fever, Simon, of course, is Peter, and immediately they told him about her, and he came and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up, and the fever left her. She began to serve him. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Verse 34, here's a key word. He healed how many? Many. He healed many who were sick. What is the difference between many and all? Some, if you're a mathematician. He didn't heal everybody. Jesus did not come to heal everybody. Here's another thing that happened to everybody who was healed of their illness. What happened to them? They still died. Just not that day. Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said, everyone is looking for you. Why did they ask that question? Jesus, the medical clinic needs to open. The patients are queuing up at the door, and we, we know that the job is to heal people, and we're not done yet. Israel is still full of sick people and demon-possessed people, so it's time to punch in and get after it. And Jesus said this, let's go to the next town, parentheses, let's leave all the sick people still sick that I may heal people? No, what does it say? That I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Jesus is telling us his purpose is to tell people good news. I have come to save sinners from what really ails them, a separation from God because of disobedience and rebellion. I have not come merely to heal you so you can die later, I have come to give you redemption so that you will only die once. Jesus' purpose is to seek and save the lost, not get us out of the tight spot we're in. He wants to provide help for our actual trouble, not the main trouble we're worried about. So let's go back to Noah. Everybody was going to die in the flood because the Bible makes it quite clear they had rejected God. So God saved Noah in his basket. Now I can't let it go, I'm sorry. Noah saved, God saved Noah in his basket. He's saying the redeemed 
I will redeem you from the floodwaters in the basket, and all of the sinners, what happened to them? They died. And Noah is still a sinner, but you have to understand the story here. Moses then comes along, and so the pattern is continuing, but with just a little bit of a change. So Moses comes along, and he passes through the water safely, and what happens to all the sinners? We're talking about Israel. Did they die? No. So something a little different happens. Moses, the Redeemer, comes, the Deliverer, and the sinners don't die, but that's also a problem. How did that work out for them in the wilderness? Grumbling, complaining, rebellion, they worshiped a cow, there was a a party that got a little bit out of hand, there was rejection of God, there was Korah's rebellion. They decided at a certain point to go back to Egypt. This was not a, this wasn't a good deal. Finally, it got to the point where God says, you know what, two of you are going to get into the promised land, Caleb and Joshua. So something a little bit different happened. The, the Redeemer passes through the water safely, and the sinners go along with him, and it still doesn't work out. Jesus comes, and something even a little bit different happens. What happens? He passes through the water, but he dies there. He dies there for the sinners. Instead of the sinners dying, instead he comes as one of us, an ordinary person, God in the flesh, and dies our death for us, and he doesn't survive that death. He was really dead. He wasn't pretend dead. When it says Jesus died on the cross, it's not Jesus had a bad day on the cross. His body really was a dead body. He did this so that therefore we would no longer be what? Sinners. See, Noah couldn't handle the sinner issue. Moses couldn't handle the sinner issue. Jesus comes in a similar pattern, and he does it just a little bit different, but what does he do? He handles the sinner issue. He decides, what if, now this is crazy, Noah. You can imagine him in heaven. No, I've got an idea. What if we just make all the sinners righteous? And it saves on the water bill? Or he goes to Moses. Moses, you walked out in the desert. How'd that walk go? It was a bad few days. It was a bad 40 years. Well, what if, Moses, what if we just made them all righteous? So how does Moses describe Jesus at the end of Deuteronomy? Another prophet is coming, and he is so much better than me because he can take his people through the wilderness and just make them righteous. Romans 5.1 says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that's a, the biblical way of saying he has made us righteous when we trust him, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have hope because Christ had decided to turn sinners into righteous people, and so now we therefore have hope in the glory of God, which is one day experiencing the very presence of God with Christ himself. So verse 3 of Romans uh, 5 makes sense. 
Not only that, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He is saying this, when you finally get a hold of the fact he dealt with the actual trouble we had, that we are sinners in need of righteousness, we can now stay in our trouble and have joy because we know that trouble doesn't matter. Our hope is not that our trouble will go away. Our hope is that one day we will participate in his glory. We, we hold more loosely to the need for trouble to go away today because we have a redeemer who didn't survive for us, but who was raised for us. In fact, if you're here and you're not a believer and you've never put your faith in Christ, you must come to the point where you realize that the trouble you face is not your trouble. The trouble you face is your sin. That without someone to die for you on purpose, you will be left alone. But through trust in him, we're made righteous. By believing in him, we're made whole. Where do we find our rest as Christians? Do we find our rest that as Christians, everything goes good for us? Do we find our rest as Christians that we can count on it before the end of our days, everything will work out? Between now and our funeral, it will all make sense. No, what we discover is it will only make sense after our funeral. That between now and then, we don't know what our trouble will be or what our trouble won't be, but we can know that that trouble has little meaning on us because Jesus has saved us from that which really matters. He was born an ordinary person, God in the flesh, to deliver the oppressed as one who was oppressed and to deliver us from the actual trouble we face. A couple of things, and we're going to close with this. Sometimes, as a Christian, it's always tempting. We want Jesus to act a little bit more like a king. We want Jesus to swoop in and fix all of the difficulties we're facing today, and many of them are significant. And certainly we should pray that he would fix those things. But we have to realize, for his purpose and for his glory, he has determined it's not time yet for that. What did Jesus tell his brothers when they told him to go to the feast? For you, it's always time. I mean, ask any Christian. When's the best time for Jesus to come back? Right now. For you, it's always time. And Jesus says, there is a set time that only the Father knows when I will come as king. What we must be careful to do in understanding how Jesus is working is we should not expect him to act as a king to us yet. God, fix all of these problems. Pour out the money. Pour out the healing. He might. And we should praise him when he does that. But he might not. Because he says, I have already saved you from the trouble that you faced. Secondly, our trouble is fixed in Christ. He died a sinner and raised in glory to accomplish salvation and justification and righteousness for you. What accusation will stand against you as a believer? None. There is no accusation that will stand against you as a believer. The enemy goes before God the Father every day and lists all of the things you're doing wrong, and he shares them with you, I'm sure. You can think of them now. 
Some of you came to church only because you did something bad and you thought it might make you feel cleaner. I'm not kidding. That's why some of us come to church. I'll let you know a secret. You didn't need to come to church to feel cleaner. I'm glad you came. But Jesus fixed that. Jesus stands at the throne, tells the fathers, the accuser brings all of the list of things you've done wrong, and he says, paid for that, paid for that. He's as righteous as you can get, clean as the wind-driven snow, and that's it. End of story. He fixed your trouble. We have a lot of troubles we face in this life. Troubles in relationships, troubles with health, troubles with finances, troubles getting out of bed, trouble getting older, youth is wasted on the young. One trouble Christians don't face is unrighteousness. No accusation will stand against you. He died. He is raised. It's good news. Finally this, be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged today. The glory of God is seen most profoundly in the ordinary. The glory of God is seen most profoundly in the ordinary, daily repentance and faith. Is God glorified that you're willing on a daily basis to admit to him that you're not living in accordance with the righteousness you have been given? That brings him great glory. That's great victory. There is profound glory in the ordinary growing in our hearts of hunger for the word of God and dependence in God for prayer. There is great glory in ordinary desire to know God through his word and to depend on God through prayer. And there is great glory in the ordinary growing of the passion in us to tell others about the good news, Christ saves sinners. Ordinary help for ordinary people. Our deliverance from oppression came from one who is oppressed. Jesus became sin for us. And Jesus delivered from us from that trouble we actually face. Thank the Lord he didn't merely fix the problems we're facing today. Instead, he saved sinners. 